Today on Agnews Daily. So if if those markets fit a uh, producer's farm style and, and the, their goals of what they want to do, they should have those opportunities to partake in those in those markets. August 16th, 2023, Tanner and Delaney here again, bringing you the Wednesday edition, hump day, right in the middle of the week, Delaney. Right in the middle of the week, Tanner. How's your week going so far? Really fast, and I feel like this morning went really fast as well. I woke up and you know, got ready, started working on some stuff on the computer and looked at the clock and went, shoot, I've got to get out the door. So very, very quick week. And I think it's going to be a very quick Wednesday. I think you're probably right, Tanner. I think South Americans are wishing that their winter would get by a little bit more quickly. This winter, South America has been the hottest on record. The intensifying crisis has created an extreme drought, wildflower concerns in most of their agricultural region. The extreme weather is already threatening critical biodiversity as far as that goes. Crops consumed and for exports are low. Their soybean yields in Argentina are the lowest they've been in 24 years. The increasing irregular weather pattern caused by the switch to El Nino is what is to be blamed. So they're continuing to keep an eye on things that's happening in South America. Parts of South America averaged 86 degrees Fahrenheit. That was recorded uh, for the average in July for Buenos Aires. And the temperature in Chile is going to hit nearly an average of 100 degrees this month. So the extreme heat is going to worsen drought conditions in some of the ag regions. Of course, we've we know that that's not the entire South American country, but still quite interesting to reflect that even though we talk about heat domes and warm weather here in the U.S., we're not the only space having hot temperatures. No, we're certainly not, Tanner. And there's a, another interesting story starting to develop down in South America as well, and that's in the Panama Canal area. Drought is now throttling traffic at the Panama Canal, and it's apparently impacting about 40% of all U.S. container traffic as we're seeing uh, harder for ships to get through due to canal restrictions and the amount of traffic it can handle due to lower water levels. It handles about 40% of all U.S. container traffic. And so folks are suggesting that once again, we might have supply chain issues for some of the exports heading out of our shores. But the organization responsible for managing the canal has decided to restrict both the number of ships passing through each day as well as the amount of cargo they can carry. And this waterway, of course, connects the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean and divides North and South America. But this reduction means fewer than 34 ships can move through the canal in both directions daily, Tanner, compared to upwards of 40-plus ships that it could handle during peak capacity. So not a huge downgrade yet. But the question a lot of folks are asking is, will the canal continue to restrict the number of ships passing through? Yeah, I had seen that as well. And it'll be interesting for us to monitor. We'll also continue to monitor the China economy. The People's Bank of China unexpectedly reduced their one-year medium-term lending facility rates by 15 basis points yesterday. This is signaling a proactive stance to support its economic challenges. The decision comes after China has been grappling with dual threats of deepening 
property crisis and sluggish values, as well as slow consumer spending. Following the disappointing economic indicators in their last report, industrial production, which was previously shown to be at a 4.4% growth in June, slowed to 3.5% in July. This was falling short of a anticipated 4.5% metric. Retail sales posted a lackluster year-on-year growth in July at just 2.5% compared to where they were expected at 4.1%. The urban unemployment rate changed upwards to 5.3. That is just one-tenth of a percent higher than June. But all in all, these are not great standards for the global economy because China is a large player there. So what does this have to do with the United States? Well, the United States exported an estimated $154 billion in goods and services to China. And one of the leading categories in there are ag products. So we'll continue to keep an eye on this as well to see where China goes next to try and keep their economy afloat. Well, Tanner, this news story is probably not going to be shocking to you or any of our listeners, but the House chairman of the Ag Committee says the 2023 Farm Bill will be later than expected. It doesn't sound like they're going to hit Tanner their September 30th deadline, according to House Chairman Glenn Thompson. And this is the first time we've seen any direct acknowledgement by any of the Farm Bill four corners between the House and Senate committee that the Farm Bill will, in fact, be late. Neither committee, it sounds like Tanner, has presented a first round version of the Farm Bill legislation, which can take months and in some cases years to complete. So it appears they're going to be have to they're going to be talking about an extension rather than a final bill here on September 30th. But if we don't see any sort of extension or new farm bill come into fruition, Dairy would be the first commodity to be affected on January 1st of 2024. Yeah, that is not unexpected. Airlines have been lobbying and pushing for jet fuel subsidies to help corn growers. The United Airlines announced that it's on track to use 10 million gallons of sustainable aviation fuel in 2023, which is 10 times more than it consumed in 2019. Multiple other airlines are showing their interest in the sustainable aviation fuel for climate reasons and for general shareholder appeasements. This would keep corn growers relevant in the rise of electric vehicle market, but the environmental activists are continuing to push back to the White House. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden administration was targeting at least 3 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel, but we see as the market has much more capacity for that. United Airlines' $10 million is just a drop in the bucket, for bad pun intended. The ethanol industry is asking the administration to use the methodology to calculate the emissions developed by the Department of Energy that shows ethanol as a lighter carbon footprint than compared to the other prescribed methods of fuel. Environmentalists, on the other hand, are advocating that There is a standard which penalizes fuels for more changes in the land linked to crop planting. So it'll be quite interesting to see which side the White House takes as they take on the sustainable aviation fuel headline. This could help move airlines forward to meet their emissions targets, depending upon the way things are calculated, or it could make it more expensive for consumers to fly. So we'll continue to keep an eye on those headlines. 
Then it's going to be interesting to see how folks fall on this issue as well. But on Tuesday, Russia released video footage showing an armed naval inspection unit boarding a cargo ship in the southwestern Black Sea on Sunday and questioning the captain about why the ship had not stopped when demanded to by a Russian warship. Russia said it fired the warning shots that we've been reporting here in the headlines with an, with automatic weapons at the vessel after it failed to respond to a demand for it to halt, though it's unclear why the ship was boarded so close to Turkey. In this video released by the Russian Defense Ministry, crew members can be seen kneeling on the deck with their hands on their head as an, a helicopter approaches. And we're seeing this through body cam footage, so it's a little uh, tricky to see the full picture. But the body cam footage from the naval unit shows Russian servicemen with automatic weapons checking the ship and entering the bridge, them having a conversation. And then, as we know, they fired a warning shot. So it's just very interesting footage that was leaked. I'm not sure why Russia thought it was in their best interest to leak this footage. Um, but it goes on for them showing a conversation about why they didn't stop. And uh, it's just, I haven't seen the video, so I'm going to have to try and find it and see if you can see anything else in there. But very strange uh, story to report on this morning. Yeah, we had seen that headline about them boarding the ship, but didn't realize that it was in a threatening manner. So that's unfortunate for those. We also see an unfortunate cleanup that we know coming out of uh, the mead ethanol defunct plant to try and cover up costs for the disposed uh, unnatural substances. Bayer and other seed companies have spent more than $28 million in the ongoing environmental cleanup of the former Alt Energy ethanol plant outside of Mead, Nebraska. Now one of the many business entities that were part of a corporate structure that went defunct, Bayer obtained a court order to freeze all of alternate energy assets and filed an amendment to that complaint just last month. Those entities include all of the Mead entities down to their acquisition company, their feedlot, so on and so forth. On, my, on Monday, Bayer filed a motion in opposition to dismissal. The Bayer attorneys stated here that they have proof that Alternate Energy was moving their money to other entities under the umbrella of companies to avoid paying for the cleanup at the plant. The defendant is stating that uh, all money was used as appropriated as far as that goes. So we'll now continue to see if other companies join Bayer, such as the Integrated Recycling Program, that consists of 50-50 business partners owned by other seed companies to continue to troll the alternate energy assets. Alternate energy shut down its plant in February, 2021 after the Nebraska department of environmental energy issued an emergency order to cease operations due to numerous environmental violations. So that shutdown has been in effect since February 8th and they are continuing to clean up because cold weather had burst a pipe at the plant causing 4 million gallons of pesticide-filled water to flow downstream. So the cleanup is not a small act or small feat that is taking place. And now Bayer is trying to make sure that the funds provided for this cleanup are being used appropriately. So we'll continue to watch their filings to see if this project continues to move forward and who will be paying for it.
Let's say the final piece of news I have here is a potential tipping point for plant-based proteins. According to CoBank on Monday, they put together a report of plant-based alternatives to red meat, poultry, and seafood. And they said that compared to their peak in 2020, the industry of plant-based proteins is down 20% across the board. And they're calling this potentially a tipping point. They said that the industry faces a tipping point, according to their report, and consumers remain interested in the concept of plant-based meats, but concerns about highly processed products and higher prices have put off many prospective customers. The uh, sales plateaued at about $1.4 billion in 2020, 21, and 22, according to the report. And here in 23, we're down about 20% all in all. So it sounds like folks are realizing, Tanner, it's maybe not a healthy alternative to regular protein. Yeah, that's interesting for uh, headline grabbing. I've just got a couple of Russia-Ukraine updates before I'm done for today. Lithuania is temporarily suspending two of their border checkpoints with no entry and no exit due to concerns with Belarus and the Wagner unit. Ukrainian forces took back the village of Eurozane in the eastern Donetsk region. These are following intense parts of their counteroffensive against Russia. Russian drones attacked the port infrastructure on the Danube River in southern Ukraine, damaging more granaries and warehouses. And CNN has exclusive footage showing Ukrainian forces using experimental sea drones to attack the Russian bridge that is annexed in Crimea that uh, we reported on a couple of weeks ago. So we're continuing to keep an eye on there. We do see that Poland has announced their decision to move 10,000 troops to its border with Belarus to continue to watch what is happening there with the Wagner division. So those are the last updates I've got for news today. Well, Tanner, I think I'm out of news as well. Aside from chatting market headlines here as we head into the opening session, grains are pushing back higher once again. September corn up two and a quarter cent will open at 466 and a quarter. Deese new crop corn up a penny and three quarter cents in the overnight at 477 and a quarter. In the soybean pits here, the September contract up nine and a quarter cent to open at 1332 and a half. November beans up nine and a half cents in the overnight at 1314 and three quarters. Hard red winter wheat in the September contract down a penny and a half at 736. September spring wheat up four and a half cents at 791. And Chicago September wheat up three and a quarter at 601 and three quarters. A quick reminder at where livestock markets closed yesterday, October live cattle shed 70 cents at a buck 79.97, September feeder cattle down 35 cents at 249.77 and a half, and October lean hogs shed 95 cents yesterday at 78.20. Tanner, Jennifer has been doing a great job lining up some great conversations this week. Today, we turn it over to a conversation with the Iowa Farm Bureau President Brent Johnson to discuss inflation costs and how they're affecting farmers and our markets. My name's Brent Johnson. I'm president of the Iowa Farm Bureau, and I'm a farmer from Calhoun County. Brent, here at the Iowa State Fair, you're getting a chance to talk to people from all over the state and country, frankly, about uh, any number of issues. But as you talk to other 
members of Farm Bureau about what's really important to them right now? What's coming up the most? Well, you know, we're in the middle of the growing season. So, you know, there's always those conversations about crops and how things are going and, and market reports and whatnot. But really the farm bill is one of those things that is part of every conversation and where are we at in the process and what's it looking like and and you know is it actually going to happen this year so so that seems to be a common thread almost every conversation we're coming toward the end of the listening session so farmers farm groups they've had a chance to provide feedback to those that are going to be crafting the farm bill how do you feel about that dialogue and what you're hearing now from folks in the the house and senate ag committees as far as where their priorities lie well you know, we've put in a lot of a lot of footwork so far, and, and I think it's paid off. You know, I think we're in a pretty good spot. You know, the Congress is on vacation right now, or on recess, I should say. And and the committees are, are back there in Washington, D.C., putting pen to paper and, and writing some things down. So, the you know, the next tier of conversations, we're going to start getting into the weeds a little bit, making sure that the details are, are what needs to happen for that farm bill. But, you know, progress has been good. Um, the the main priorities um, have been met so far, so so let's make sure that those are shored up and maintained that, that they are a part of the farm bill. And and then you also have some of these other conversations that that boil up, you know, like the Proposition 12 conversation. And the response to that look is the Eats Act currently in Washington D.C. And is that a part of this farm bill? Is that a part of something other, uh, some other package? So so you have some of these nuances that um, we need to make sure that. The foundation of the farm bill is the foundation of the farm bill and it, it holds true to what our uh, farmers need. But you know, the EATS Act is highly, highly important and that needs to find its way through too. So so there's always this yin and yang and how do you how do you make sure that those priorities all hold together? There was a a sense that this farm bill would be heavy on, on conservation and climate issues going back two, three years even, I think it's safe to say. So as you think about the agenda of the administration and just how Farmers now are approaching some of those issues. How much different will this farm bill be because of that aspect? Well, so that's that's a very important question. And, and you know, our, our theme here at the State Fair for Farm Bureau is generations of conservation. So, you know, we have so many good stories to tell, not only as Iowa top production leader in so many different categories, but we're also the top leaders in conservation. So, so it is top of mind as something that's important for farmers. But when it comes to the farm bill, that's a security net and making sure that, that we have some stability in the markets. So so that's that function. And talking with G.T. Thompson, the, the head of the House Ag Committee, um, we've had some conversations and he made it clear that this farm bill was not going to become a climate bill. And so so far that's held true. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that stance. So, you know, to make sure that our, our risk management tools are taken care of, and secured, make sure that our conservation practices have the ability to continue to, to grow and be implemented is important as well, but we don't need to confuse those two. And, and I think GT's done a really nice job of, of navigating that space. And, and uh, I, think, I think we're on track for a, a fairly decent farm bill. Not really farm bill related, Brent, but with the focus on conservation through Farm Bureau, both at the state and national level, what is the message to members about these carbon market opportunities as they continue to grow? Yeah, so so the Farm Bureau's always been the, the voluntary portion of that conversation. So so if if those 
markets fit uh, producers' farm style and, and the, their goals of what they want to do, they should have those opportunities to partake in those in those markets. And and if not, um, those farmers shouldn't be penalized for for that same as for their for their viewpoints as well. When it comes to things like the carbon pipelines and some of those conversations, our members have really told us to make sure that eminent domain and, and land reconstruction and some of those things are solid. So so if those projects are to move forward, that the the farmers that are um, that have that infrastructure going through their land, that they're properly taken care of, not only during construction but afterwards as well. What's your personal attitude toward carbon markets? Um, you know, my personal attitude is is really it, it, it almost sounds cheesy, but it, I'm not out of step with what our members say. You know, I, I could, I think there's an important place for them. Um, it seems like that conversation does grow. Um, and for me, it's a, it's a financial opportunity, possibly. And so I would be looking at it from the business aspect. You mentioned that the growing season and weather, definitely a, a talking point here at the State Fair. How would you describe conditions in your part of Iowa and then more broadly across the state and then even as you talk to other Farm Bureau members in other states what they're seeing? Yep. Yeah, you know I've done a lot of travel this summer and uh, there's there's some really tough looking areas of the Midwest and uh, you know my personal farm we're about two hours northwest of Des Moines here and and you know we had a tough week there kind of during pollination so we'll see how that plays out but since then we've had some we've been getting some consistent rains we've had a few inches which is very unique for the last couple years so we're set up pretty nicely at home um, but you know there are I've traveled a lot of different parts of Iowa you know in the south is pretty tough Missouri's tough southern Minnesota actually looks pretty tough too and and uh, you know so there's there's definitely some areas that we're going to be lower on production, but um, there's there's some good spots out here as well. On biofuels, there's continued talk about year-round E15 and eight Midwestern governors, including Governor Reynolds here in Iowa, uh, working to solidify that certainty. There's also legislation in Congress. How do you see the next six months to year playing out as far as if E15 is going to be available to consumers next summer? Yeah, well, you know, I, th I think it will be. Um, it's unfortunate that the EPA continues to drag their feet. You know, Governor Reynolds was was right at the forefront a couple years ago, starting this initiative, and and we supported her um, very much in that effort. And we continue to have um, some some strong conversations with the EPA. You know, they need to abide by the law that it is currently the the, the situation in the United States and the upper Midwest states. Um, are supposed to have year-round E15. And for them to administratively get in the way of that is, is a serious problem. And, and uh, you know, as we, as we look forward to the future opportunities, you know, the, the, the production of biofuels across the board, um, we think there's a really bright future. There's, there's a lot of soybean crush facilities coming on. There's, you know, potentially some um, aviation fuel um, facilities coming on soon. So, um, you know, there's, there's huge markets there. And when it comes to environmental aspects, fuel usage, energy, energy conversations, um, the biofuels, ethanol, biodiesel, they, they fit right in there. And the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, 
should understand that better than anybody. And unfortunately, um, we continue to have to work at that piece. How would you describe the impact inflation has had on your bottom line and the bottom line of farmers generally? Yeah, so inflation has been a huge topic for farmers over the last couple of years, as you well know. You know, when when your common um, citizen was experiencing seven, eight percent inflation, farmers were um, experiencing fifty to three hundred percent inflation on their inputs, and it's it's been a good thing that we've had some. Uh, strong revenues on the on the grain sales side of things to be able to handle some of that but here we are at this point of time right now where um, our risk reward is as high as it's ever been the markets have have slipped quite a bit lately they're well below break even because of that inflation cost over the last two years so um, so we got to have some some corrections in one form or another um, it does look like input pricing is maybe coming in line a little bit, but you know, yields. We'll see how that comes out. But you know, the the risk factor that's out in the countryside right now to put in this crop right now, it's the most expensive crop that's ever been planted. Um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of risk out there, and so um, we need to make sure that that gets repriced properly in whatever avenue it, it shows us in the future. And related to that, Brent, this is the most expensive ground farmers have ever farmed. And so as you think about cash rent negotiations, uh, there's another costly input. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, there's, those are, those are always ongoing conversations. And, and we're right in that midst right now. You know, those contracts um, either do or don't um, renew, you know, by September 1st typically so so there's a lot of those conversations happening I'm hearing some numbers that that are that are tough to deal with but um, you know I don't know that that's out of line for any other year um, but um, land costs by far are the uh, main driver for profitability on the farm every day is a great day at the Iowa State Fair but this one's extra special because yep. it's Iowa Farm Bureau Day it is you know it's Farm Bureau Day it's we're supposed to have highs you know in the upper 70s, just absolutely gorgeous. We've got a lot of things going on this year. Um, of course, Farm Bureau Park, we've, we're giving away a, a few thousand dollars in um, ethanol and groceries and whatnot. Um, we're also giving away some, some rain gauges so if people come in, check their membership. Um, we were saying that it's a pray for rain gauge, but, uh, um, but regardless, uh, we got some nice things here. Also, one of the main things for today, we have our uh, cook-off contest. So the concourse smells great right mm -hmm. now. There's people milling around. Uh, samples are being handed out. And here in a couple hours, we'll be crowning the, the winners of all the different categories in the overall. And we'll have Governor Reynolds here and, and probably some other folks to help us out that, at that time as well. Any other topics you want to make sure we talk about? Um, you know, really, the the... I almost I almost have to mention our members. You know the 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 impact of the Farm Bureau across the state, across the country, is is well known. And grassroots almost gets a little bit cliche, but it's absolutely true. And here in a couple of weeks, we're going to have our summer policy conference where members from across the entire state are coming to Des Moines, and they're going to tell us, me, myself, and and staff. Um, what our priorities are going to be for the next coming year. So um, I'm interested to hear what they have to say, the deliberation that they go through and on their way to those decisions and, and uh, getting to work for them over the next year. 
I appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Yep. Thanks, Mark. There you go. Halfway through the week means we've got two more shows for you. So come back and hang out with us tomorrow and Friday. We'll be here to continue to keep you updated on the latest headlines. But for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.